Welcome to the study of God's Word, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. Um, On my heart for you guys today is uh, a passage in Ephesians chapter 1. You could go ahead and turn there to Ephesians chapter 1. And this is a word of prayer over the church. Uh, It is Paul's prayer over the church of Ephesus. And this letter to the church of Ephesus really was beyond the church of Ephesus. It was written and very likely sent out in circulation in that day to uh, several surrounding churches. In some of the original manuscripts that were discovered, the, it was blank where it says to the church of, to those saints who are in Ephesus. It didn't say Ephesus. It was just a blank spot in some of the manuscripts, giving that indication that it was sent out. And it was for the church collectively. Paul even says in the introduction to the book that it is not just for the saints who are in Ephesus, but it is also for the faithful in Christ Jesus. Uh, That is including in that day, and important to include, the Jews and the Gentiles. But even we can take this letter to the church of Ephesus as a letter to us, the church, today. And so we're reminded of that as we study it. Anytime you read and study it, you can be reminded of that. That this is a letter to me. As a believer who is in Christ Jesus, this is a word for me. So this prayer from Paul is over the church collectively. And this prayer I couldn't agree with more. And I would love for it to be a prayer over you and for you at Calvary Church here in Aurora. As I am so grateful for you. But here we'll read. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, it says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the hope and the promises that are contained in your word, for the truth of your word. And we fix our eyes on you today and we ask that you would bless us, that you would teach us, you would draw us closer to you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are, Ephesians chapter 1, in in verse 15, as it starts, it says, therefore. And I know you are a well-taught church, and when you see the word in the scripture, therefore, you ask yourself the question, 
What is it therefore? It is a connecting word, connecting the previous text with the text that is right here in front of us now. So we have to rewind a little bit and get some context of what Ephesians 1 is speaking to us, what it's telling us. And much of Ephesians 1 in in verses 1 through 14 is giving us a, a picture of and a message of the doctrine of salvation. In understanding, you'll see the word several times throughout this first chapter, understanding what it is to be in Christ. And so that being this theme throughout the, the chapter of chapter one there, being in Christ. Having, being in Christ is having relationship and personal fellowship, intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ yourself. It's not just about a label of Christianity Not just a title to say, I am a Christian, but that you are in Christ, constantly in fellowship with him. And so Paul saying this, therefore, well, therefore, since you are in Christ, because of that, I have heard. Because of your fellowship with Christ, I have heard. And what does he say? I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great reputation to have. That I have heard of your faith. Now, we, we, we you know, can be given the title or you know, have the label of a man or a woman of faith, and we like give, being given that title. We're good with that. But what we're talking about here is something so much more than that. Not just being a man or a woman of faith, but someone who walks by faith. And this is the word that they are known for their faith. After all of these doctrines that are spoken of, you know, after we are speaking of being in Christ and the fellowship and relationship that is in Christ, your faith is evident. That is the word for the church. You are in Christ in fellowship and relationship. You are walking in redemption. You have trusted. You have believed. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And you are known. By your faith. That you walk by faith and not by sight. That word walk is a steady process of moving forward. Meaning we can't stand still and we can't move backward. But we are moving forward in our faith that we would be known. Let that be the evidence of our fellowship with Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. The evidence of your fellowship with Jesus. The evidence of your relationship with Jesus is your faith. Let that be the testimony of our lives, that we are known by our faith, taking steps of faith, and that our ev- the evidence of our fellowship with Jesus is our faith. Further, he says here, you are, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. You are known not only for your faith, but you are known for your love. Now, Jesus said, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What a beautiful thing it is to say. I I live across the country from you guys, but I can say I love you because you're my brothers and sisters in Christ. And we can have love for one another and we can celebrate what is going on across the country. I can celebrate what God is doing in your life and in Calvary Church here because I know your faith and your love. And let me say that of you guys, of Calvary Church. I know your pastor well. 
I've gotten to know some of the other pastors here, and I have heard the testimony, and the, the testimony of your church is that you are known by your faith and your love. That's a beautiful testimony, that we would be known by our love for one another. This is the mark of the church. It is love. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That we might celebrate rather than get upset over what's going on. We have too many competitions going on in the body of Christ. Rather, we need to celebrate. We need to look at what God is doing and celebrate faith and love. That we could be confident in the motives that other people have. Far too often there's division in the body of Christ because we think the worst of each other sometimes, don't we? We think people are sometimes out to get us. We think that that person, their their motives are terrible. Are we trusting that they have a relationship with Jesus Christ? And if we trust that somebody has a relationship with Jesus Christ, we should celebrate their faith and love. Now, interestingly enough, this mark of love is the one thing found lacking of the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. As John writes, the revelation of Jesus Christ and, and the word of Christ is that, hey, church of Ephesus, you've got great things going on. You've got great programs, great ministry events. Good job. Good humanitarian projects. But this one thing I have against you, you have left or you have lost your first love. Now, at one point, Ephesus was known by Paul for their love. But yet, in the revelation of Jesus Christ, he says, you have lost your first love. You could get caught up in even that label and say, oh yeah, we're known for our love. The community knows us as a loving church and we do good things to help the community and that's all well and good. But would we remain? Would we not let our love grow cold? So let us, the church, be known by our faith and love. Let me just say that this is the word that is for all the saints. That you are known by your faith and you are known by your love for all the saints. Not just your little clique. Not just your church, not just your little small group or home group maybe, but for all the saints. And for this, it was a word written to say the love for the Jew, love for the Gentile, love for the believers, all believers, past, present, future. This is connecting all of us. It's important that love be evident. Now, faith And love do not earn us participation into God's great work of salvation. But they are the evidence that we are in Christ. Let them be the evidence that we would be known for our steps of faith. This is how God has constantly worked in my life. He's given me a vision. He's shown me something. This is what I want you to do with your life. But wait, not yet. 
And so there, but there's constant steps of faith. Not that long ago, I had a pastor friend who, who asked me, what makes Mike McCarrick, Mike McCarrick? And without thinking, the first thing that came to my mind, I said, the next step of faith. That's what I want to be known for. I don't want to be known by just being a man of faith or a good guy. I want to be known for taking the next step of faith. So verse 16 then, because of this, he says, because of the evidence that you are in Christ, because of uh, the fact that I know you have fellowship with Jesus, and because of the evidence that is clear in your faith and your love, I can't stop praying for you. I do not cease, he says, to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Because of all this clear evidence, I thank God. I celebrate your faith and love. And I can say that without question. From New Jersey to Colorado, I celebrate the evidence of your fellowship with Jesus Christ. And I love nothing more than to hear the work that God is doing here in and through your church. But Paul here is saying, look, because of your faith and love, I'm committed to prayer for you. I'm so thankful and I can celebrate, so I pray for you. Paul, understanding the importance of prayer, it wasn't just Paul, the preacher, the, the discipler, and the church planter. Paul, the apostle, he was Paul, the man of prayer, committed to praying for people because of their faith and love, because he, was, he loved them. And so these verses uh, 15 and 16 are Paul's introduction to prayer. And now in these following verses of 17 through 23, we're going to look at the prayer. We're going to look at Paul's prayer over the church, and we're going to look at seven points of what Paul prays over the church, remembering this, that this is a prayer over us who are in Christ. This is a prayer over you. Let this be a prayer over you, Calvary Church. So verse 17 says this, that the God, and this is the prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Point number one, there is a prayer for revelation. Revelation, there's two kinds of revelation. One is like, it's an internal revelation. It is something that we can have, we can learn something, right? We dig deep. Maybe you study the scriptures and, you, and you're learning through what the scripture is revealing and you're studying and you're getting this information. Or you're, you're gaining revelation through whatever it might be in your job, your workplace, your things are being revealed through your hard work. Maybe through your intellect. And that's all well and good, but there's also this external. Outside of ourselves, there is revelation. I'm reminded of Peter. I'm reminded of when Jesus asked the disciples, he said, who do men say that I am? And they, some say a prophet and, they, you know, good guy. He said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That revelation had nothing to do with Peter. Remember Peter, the guy who's constantly putting his foot in his mouth? 
right? Peter, who's putting the cart before the horse. Peter, who rebuked Jesus. Peter, who denied Jesus. And he has the most profound doctrinal statement in that moment to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus has been trying to reveal that to them. Jesus is showing himself throughout scripture. God is trying to reveal himself to us. Jesus in his time with the disciples is trying to reveal himself to the disciples. And now he says, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. That's not within yourself, Peter. It's not something that you figured out for yourself. But my father who is in heaven, that is the external revelation And that is what Paul is talking about here, so that we may know the mystery of the gospel. Earlier in this chapter, in verse 9, Paul says it, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. Now, when we think of a mystery, we often go to like a murder mystery or these, you know, a movie that you're watching and there's the big like reveal at the end of it, right? Or something, we think of a mystery that we can't quite figure out. We can't solve the puzzle. But in scripture, when when it speaks of a mystery, it's actually speaking of a revelation at the same time. Because the mystery has already been solved and resolved in Christ and now being revealed to us as we are in Christ. So this prayer is for revelation. We need to come to an understanding this revelation is all about being in Christ. This revelation is about relationship. Well, further, number two, we look and we see there is a prayer for knowledge. Knowledge comes through revelation. Peter didn't just figure out for himself that Jesus is the Messiah. Revelation took place. Jesus was revealed to him. The word here for knowledge is speaking of an experiential knowledge. Meaning you got to experience and get your hands on it. John writes about it in 1 John. He says that our eyes have seen and our hands have handled. We have experienced Jesus. And so John writes out of a perspective of having been with Jesus. And that's what Paul is writing to say here. This prayer is for knowledge that you would experience intimacy with Jesus. It's not just a knowledge of God. It's not just about cramming our minds full of information. It's about experiencing him. It's about knowing him personally. Now, I I am a big baseball fan. And being from New Jersey, I am a Yankee fan. I bleed Yankee blue. I constantly text back and forth with Pastor Ed, arguing over the Yankees and Dodgers. We have 27 world championships. We'll just leave it there. And anyway, as a kid, I knew everything about the Yankees. The the late 90s Yankees were were my teams. And I knew every detail. I knew every, every player on the roster and every stat of every player on the roster. I had a lot of knowledge of the New York Yankees. I had no experience with the New York Yankees. I didn't know any of the players. I didn't know anybody in the organization. I didn't have an experiential understanding or knowledge of the team. 
but yet I claim them to be mine. We win the World Series. I say, we win the World Series. I had nothing to do with it. But that's what we do as fans, right? We get excited and we're like, oh, we win. We didn't do anything. We clapped our hands. We yelled at the TV. But we're lacking in experiential knowledge. You know what I found out? About 15, 16 years old, all that knowledge was useless. And now I don't remember. I don't even know what, whatever the lineup was in 1998 and their statistics. What difference does it make? But we need to know Jesus Christ personally. Paul writes, Paul, a man who had great knowledge, a Hebrew of Hebrews, more knowledgeable than most. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, I have determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We can't just be filled with head knowledge. We need to know Jesus. We need to experience Jesus. And that is the prayer over the church knowing him personally as the way, the truth, and the life. And knowledge is so that we might glorify him. The more we get to know him, the more he's revealed to us, the more we get to know him, the more we will naturally worship him. I love visiting out here in Colorado, partially because I love driving down the roads and seeing the mountains now, we have the Garden State, but it's flat. New Jersey is completely flat. We have nice beaches. It's beautiful and green everywhere, but it's flat. So I love coming out here and seeing the majestic mountains. And every time I visit, I try to do a little bit of sightseeing, just get a little picture of something, find some time. The other day, I went over to Pikes Peak and drove up there. And last time I was here, I went to Rocky Mountain National Park and being in that place, I love to just sit or stand and take it all in and look around. And sometimes I'm, I'm brought to this, I'm brought to tears even to realize how amazing God is that he spoke it all into existence. And the beautiful mountains here are but a speck on this planet. And you know what? God doesn't care about those mountains like he cares about you and me. We'll get further into that in a few moments here. But the more we get to see who God is, the more we experience Him, His creation, His glory, the more we worship Him. Because of who He is, because of what He's done. So further now, we get into point number three. Knowledge leads us to wisdom as it says as well in verse 17. And then further into verse 18, it says that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. This prayer is for wisdom. Spiritual wisdom. Now wisdom that is from the Spirit of God, it says. It is the Spirit of wisdom that, we, that he may give us the Spirit of wisdom. And that wisdom is wisdom that is from God. It is wisdom that is from above. James 
talks about this in James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, says this, Who is wise in understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Clearly, there's a difference between earthly and heavenly wisdom. Wisdom that is from above is, this is what Paul is praying for. Spiritual wisdom. What is pure and peaceable, gentle and willing to yield. I don't know about you guys, but in general terms, you look around in the world, we don't see that type of wisdom. Willing to yield, pure and peaceable, What does it say of earthly wisdom? That it is full of confusion. I don't know about you, but you look at the last couple years in the entire world and the wisdom that the world has to offer is completely full of confusion and hypocrisy. And you know what James says? That is earthly, sensual, and demonic. That's the wisdom that the world has to offer. We shouldn't be so surprised when we see the world going crazy trying to figure things out. It's what's to be expected. But the prayer over the church, if you are in Christ, this prayer is that you would have the spirit of wisdom that is from above. And in that, it's without partiality. It's without hypocrisy. And it is full of good fruit. It is full of mercy. That wisdom is a beautiful thing. And as verse 18 then continues to tell us, it is, this wisdom includes understanding. Understanding. If you take knowledge and you add understanding to it, you gain wisdom. Wisdom also includes enlightenment, as it says here. The word for enlightenment here is spiritually to be ingrained with saving knowledge. What you realize here as we study through this, it's all about relationship and fellowship with Jesus Christ. Because relationship and fellowship with Jesus Christ is our salvation, being in Christ walking with him, trusting in him. It points us back to this knowledge. Wisdom comes from knowledge, which includes understanding and enlightenment, and knowledge comes from revelation. God needs to be revealed to us, and we need to respond in faith and love. Further in verse 18, number four now is a prayer for hope. It says the hope of his calling. We need hope. The word for hope is an expectation 
of coming good. And again, if you try to put your hope in anything of this world, you will quickly find out that there is no expectation of coming good. In fact, there is oftentimes an expectation of coming bad in this world. But you see, hope has nothing to do with the physical things. It has nothing to do with the temporal things. It has everything to do with eternal. Paul, in the beginning of this chapter, speaks of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. He starts out by giving an eternal perspective, and now he's continuing to speak of a heavenly and an eternal perspective. That is hope. Hope guides us. Hope gives us an eternal perspective. I don't know what I would do without hope. I've been through, my wife and I have been through some terrible circumstances in life. And we've sat together and we have wept together and said, what would we do without Jesus? Because without Jesus, we sorrow and we suffer as those who have no hope. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus today, I'm going to give you an invitation at the end of this message to respond. There is hope. You don't have to suffer without hope. You don't have to sorrow without hope. Paul's heart, his prayer for the church, for you who are in Christ, is that you would know, you would understand the hope of his calling, hope that points us toward eternal life, hope that points us to freedom from sin and victory. Hope gives us purpose because we know what we're living for. And it's the hope of his calling, so we ask, well, what is his calling? His calling is to follow Jesus. In John chapter 21, you may know this story well. After Jesus died and rose from the dead, Peter says, I'm going fishing. He goes back to Galilee and he's fishing and Jesus performs this great miracle. Then they have breakfast of fish on the beach and then Jesus is walking on the shores of the Sea of Galilee with Peter, much like Pastor Ed this week, walking on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And he's with Peter, he, he tells him this calling on his life. And the calling is to feed his sheep, to feed his lambs, telling Peter, you're going to, you have a call to ministry. You're going to shepherd the flock. You're going to pastor, Peter. And he tells him, you're also going to suffer and die for my sake, Peter. That gives you a lot of hope, doesn't it? But he's able to move forward in hope. And Peter does fulfill this calling, but what we find out there is that this great calling was actually to follow Jesus. And when we follow Jesus, he fulfills the other calling. You might say, well, I don't know. I'm not called to be a missionary or full, into full-time ministry. So what does that mean for me? Follow Jesus. Jesus. Peter even asked Jesus, he said, well, what about John? Is John going to follow? Is John going to, is he called to ministry? Is he called to suffer and die like I am? He says, what happens with John happens with John. 
And he says, Peter, you follow me. That's the calling, to follow Jesus, to have fellowship with Jesus. And in that, there is hope. For Peter, there was hope, even though he knew he was going to suffer and die. He eventually would be crucified upside down with great hope. And he writes about that hope. Follow Jesus. It gives us hope. Further in verse 18, number five, we see a prayer for the riches. And we like the sound of riches, don't we? But this prayer is for the riches of the glory of his inheritance. When we talk about riches, it's an economic term. Earlier in this chapter, in verse 7, it says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. There's several different economic terms here in Ephesians 1. Riches, speaking of inheritance. I like to think we're talking about God's economy. And when we talk about God's economy, we are pointed toward his grace and his mercy. That is God's economy. It's not about wealth of this world. Again, giving us a heavenly and an eternal perspective. It has nothing to do with the wealth of this world. And we're sometimes we're blown away. We're amazed by the wealth of this world. And sometimes we would think there is an embarrassment of riches. My wife and I, years ago, we, we served in the mission field. We lived in the Bahamas. It's a third world country, no matter if you think it's this great place, uh, right? Oh, yeah, it must be nice living in the Bahamas. We didn't live in a resort. It's a third world country, very much so. But as we lived there, we would take some days, you know, a little day trip or a date night, and we'd go over to the resorts, the Paradise Island. And we were walking there, and all these yachts come into port. And the wealth is ridiculous. Some of these yachts have helicopters on them. And they're multi-million dollar yachts that people are just, just buying it, you know, cash, no problem. And we think that's a total embarrassment of riches. We are shocked by it. We are in awe of it sometimes. But guys, that's nothing. These multi-million dollar yachts or whatever else, these large, massive purchases that go on are nothing compared to the riches of His grace. Because the riches of His grace are a complete embarrassment of riches. In that He has brought us from death to life. Nobody's money is going to do that. All of the wealth and the riches in the world cannot bring you from death to life. But the riches of His grace can bring you from death to life. And so not only are we talking about the riches of His grace, but now here we talk more about the riches of the glory of His inheritance. In God's economy, there is an incredible eternal inheritance. The word inheritance, it's another economic term. It's this idea of, man, we, we save up and we have maybe a retirement account and we're planning for our future and then when we die we want our kids to have an inheritance right and we're storing it up to give to them one day 
added to that, though, now we're talking about God's inheritance, the glory of his inheritance. And, and so what is his inheritance? In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8 and 9, it says this, when the Most High, speaking of God on high, the Most High divided their inheritance, Father, Son, and Spirit, divided their inheritance to the nations. When he separated the sons of Adam, he set boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. Right? This is all talking about God giving the inheritance of the land to the people of Israel. But then verse 9 says this, For the Lord's portion is his people. He didn't need the land. He didn't need that inheritance. His portion, his inheritance is his people. But here's the thing. Does that seem like a very good inheritance? No, it doesn't. In Ephesians chapter 2, in the next page, will continue to tell us how much it is a terrible inheritance based on ourselves, right? We were once dead in our trespass and sin. We were gross, sinful beings, every one of us. But yet, we're his inheritance? Why and how? The Lord's inheritance is his people, and God makes riches out of the saints because he has invested so much. He has paid. He has put that investment into us, and it's the riches of his grace. Now, I've got four kids if I give my kids an allowance or if they get some birthday money or Christmas money as a gift, right? What do I tell them? Don't spend it all in one place, right? We've heard that since we were kids. You tell your kids that maybe. Maybe you have to tell yourself that even now, you know, maybe you, you get some money, you get that bonus at work and hey, don't spend it all in one place. Seems like good advice. Look at what's happened here, guys. God, the Father, Son, and Spirit has made this beautiful, perfect plan for redemption before the foundation of the world. And the Father gave the Son an allowance. That allowance is the riches of His grace. And He told Him, go spend it all in one place. On people. On His people. That is his inheritance. And that's how the inheritance is worth something because of the riches of his grace that is poured in. He invested so much. He spent it all in one place to make his saints the glorious inheritance for himself. That shows us how much God desires fellowship with us. He's done it all. Ultimately, we bring nothing to the table. We, as, as I said, Ephesians 2 tells us, we were worthless. But he made us worth something because of the riches that he has to offer, the riches of his grace. He brought us from death to life. And he desires this fellowship. God has always desired fellowship. 
He created man in his image. He created everything perfect and had perfect fellowship with man. And then what happened? Sin entered the world, brought separation. There was no longer that fellowship with God. And even at that point, God is walking through the garden looking for Adam. What's Adam doing? He's hiding from God. Was God looking to zap Adam? No, he was looking for fellowship with Adam. And ever since, God has been looking for fellowship with man. So much so that he gave his son to die on a cross, to raise from the dead, so that we could have intimate fellowship with him. That's what it's all about. Relationship and fellowship. Further, we see here in verse 19, and and it says, and what is according to, Oh, what is the exceeding greatness? We'll stop for a second. I love when we see like and, 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 and. And it talks about the exceeding greatness. I like to say that the Bible is the greatest infomercial in the history of the world. We can keep saying page after page, but wait, there's more. There's always more. There's always greater spiritual blessing as we press into our fellowship with Christ. There's always hope. There's always heaven to look forward to. Knowing in confidence that Jesus is on the throne. Number six here, and we see in verse 19, what is exceeding, the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Number six is a prayer for power. And much like riches, we like the sound of that. Within knowing God is knowing his power. And again, that's an experiential knowledge. As we experience relationship with Jesus Christ, that we have been with Christ, that we are in Christ, we have his power available to us. And it's in us. With power comes victory. It's just the same power that raised Christ from the dead is in us and is available to us as believers who are in Christ. Now, this is not a magic genie in a lamp type of perspective here. We can't just conjure up the power from on high to do whatever we want, whenever we want. And there are some churches that would teach that. But the reality is this. This is speaking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is in us And so what this tells us is that this prayer for power over us, the church who are in Christ, is a prayer for victory over sin. It's a prayer for resurrected living. That's what it's all about. That we would live in and walk in the newness of life. When Jesus called Lazarus to come forth out of the tomb, the next thing he said was, take off your grave clothes. The translation for that is 
garments of death. I like that. It sounds really harsh. Take off your garments of death. But what we get the picture of is that we should, you know, as we are called to resurrection, as Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he calls us to rise with him. He's given us the opportunity, the privilege, the blessing to be resurrected in Christ. And as we are called to rise, we are called to rid ourselves of the garments of death. That we don't walk around looking like dead men and women. But we live in the newness and walk in the newness of life. This is power for resurrected living. To bring us from death to life. From sorrow to joy. Perhaps from addiction to victory. For, from maybe being a Pharisee to walking in humility. From rejecting to believing. And defining that power that is available to us, it, it never runs out. That power raised Christ from the dead and, but wait, there's more, it placed Christ on the throne. And then it tells us here that Jesus then has power over all. All things are under him. He has power over all angelic beings and over all the earth, which brings us then to our final point, number seven, verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The prayer here, the conclusion to the prayer is that we would be under the authority of Jesus Christ. Because all things are under his authority. And if we're not living under his authority, then we are in big trouble. But if we are in Christ, then the prayer is, be ruled by Jesus. Be under the authority of Jesus. The power that is demonstrated in the resurrection as well as the ascension and the positioning of Christ on the throne has placed all things under his feet. Jesus is set as the head over all things, including the church. Paul emphasizes that Christ is the head of the church. Now that is after he speaks of some pretty deep doctrinal things here in Ephesians chapter 1, this doctrine of salvation. And we don't have time to get into all these things like predestination that's spoken of here or election that's spoken of here. You can ask Pastor Ed about that when he comes back from Israel. But see, when we get caught up in all these doctrines, sometimes the doctrine or somebody's ideology of the doctrine can become our authority. And we're under that rule. We're under that authority. And we allow the doctrine to rule us. We, we allow somebody else's ideology to rule us. Or like the, the Catholic Church has very much made the Pope the head of the church. But Paul makes it clear that it's Christ who's the head. It's no man. It's no doctrine. It's Jesus. Jesus is the authority. 
He's set as the head over all things. For us at Cornerstone Church, we are constantly reminding ourselves that Christ is the head of the church. And if Christ is the head of the church, Christ needs to be the center of who we are and of what we do. It speaks then of the church being his body. He's the head and the church is the body. The community of believers, including, as we've said before, the Jews, the Gentiles, all the saints, past, present, and future, as it says here, in the age which is to come, all who are in Christ are part of the body of Christ, meaning that we are joined to Christ and joined together in Christ. Look at what we have in Christ, guys. My prayer for you is that you would be blessed in your relationship, that you would celebrate and appreciate your relationship and your fellowship with Jesus. And so in conclusion, remember this prayer over the church and let let this be the prayer over your own lives here and now. The prayer is for a revelation that brings knowledge, that leads to wisdom, that gives us hope because of God's glorious riches and power all under the authority of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you made a way for us to have fellowship with you, to have nearness. Here and now, today, we just... We thank you for your heart for us, for this prayer, this inspired word of prayer over the church, that we would know you, that we would have great fellowship with you, that we would see you work in a mighty way in our lives, that we would walk in the newness of life. So here today, we just say, we need you. Jesus, we need you. We're desperate for you. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.